Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're diving right into the headlines to explain the latest on protests in Cuba, new data on the opioid epidemic, and the story behind some Texas lawmakers' great escape. Then, if you've been hearing about booster shots or third vaccine doses, we'll recap what's going on and why the U.S. government is saying, slow down, guys. Later, finding an affordable house right now feels impossible. We'll speak to some experts about why the housing market is so nuts and how long it's going to stay like this. And finally, we're taking a trip to the French Riviera for the Cannes Film Festival. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, Cuba is seeing its biggest anti-government protests in decades. Here's what's going down. After more than 60 years of communist rule, life on the island remains pretty hard, with Cubans dealing with political oppression and economic instability, driven in part by U.S. sanctions. And the pandemic's impact on tourism hasn't helped. Cuba's been seeing food and medicine shortages, rapidly rising prices, and frequent power outages. Fed up, Cubans took to the streets earlier this week, calling for an end to the communist government. That didn't go over well. Cubans on the island telling us they're cutting off power so people don't have ways to charge their cell phones. Access to Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram was blocked. There were clashes, violent clashes, between protesters and police. Police to 80 demonstrators have been arrested. These historic protests and the Cuban government's violent crackdown against them is getting a lot of attention here in the U.S. Earlier this week, President Biden said he stands with the Cuban protesters. But many people want him to do more. Though what that should look like depends on who you ask. Some advocates want the U.S. to send humanitarian aid to the island, while some Republicans want Biden to increase support for protesters by providing satellite internet to Cubans so they can communicate with the world. Others, like Florida Senator Marco Rubio, want Biden to get even tougher and use sanctions to punish Cuba's communist government. And this is where Biden faces a big choice. Cuba has always been a policy challenge for the U.S., and decades of restrictions against the country haven't led it to abandon communism. But with instability on the island reaching a fever pitch, some say now's the time for the U.S. to try to influence Cuba's future once again, leaving Biden with a big diplomatic decision to make right in America's backyard. Our next headline is a pretty upsetting one. Overdose deaths soared 29% last year to a record high. Here's the context. On Wednesday, the CDC estimated that more than 93,000 people died from drug overdoses last year. Most of those deaths were reportedly because of fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that's rapidly spread around the U.S. in recent years. The U.S. had already been struggling with the opioid crisis before COVID-19, And these new numbers show just how much the pandemic has worsened America's drug crisis. Experts say lockdowns made things worse by further isolating people and limiting access to treatments for those already battling addiction. This week, Biden nominated former West Virginia health official Dr. Rahul Gupta to lead the nationwide response to the opioid epidemic. 
as health commissioner, Dr. Gupta advocated for increasing access to naloxone and other potentially life-saving drugs. The FDA and health groups want naloxone to be as widely available as possible, even over-the-counter. But the drug is costly, and there are parts of the country where you can't even find it in the first place. Still, it's TBD how Dr. Gupta plans to tackle this epidemic on a nationwide scale. But one thing is clear. More funding and a comprehensive approach are likely needed before we see those overdose numbers go down. Our final headline this week is about a pretty big showdown in Texas. Not an actual showdown, but a face-off over a voting bill that's played out more like an action movie. Texas House Democrats fled. They left the state on buses and planes. Here's a plot summary. In Act 1, Texas Republicans proposed legislation in an attempt to make elections more secure. But critics said this bill will actually prevent a lot of people from voting. And cue conflict. Texas Dems staged a very dramatic walkout to prevent its passing. On to Act 2. Last week, Texas began a 30-day special legislative session to try to pass some pending legislation, including that controversial voting bill. All right, it's time for Act 3. This week, Texas Dems took things up a notch. After reportedly making top-secret phone calls, Texas House Democrats packed up their cowboy boots and left the Lone Star State under the cover of darkness. Just kidding, it was in broad daylight. They set up camp over a thousand miles from home in Washington, D.C. The reason? To prevent a vote on that bill. And scene. Right? Not quite. The Dems didn't exactly pick a sneaky hiding place. So Texas Governor Greg Abbott fired back, threatening those lawmakers with arrest, saying they would be detained as soon as they came back to Texas. And while this latest scene sounds wild, plotting an escape, fleeing on private jets, calling for politicians' arrests, no one's actually sure how this movie's gonna end. Governor Abbott says he'll just keep calling special sessions until lawmakers, quote, do their job and pass the bill. So will Texas Democrats get their Hollywood ending? Stay tuned. Our next story is one you're probably really tired of hearing about. 47 states and the District of Columbia are now reporting increases, with the CDC saying the Delta variant accounts for 58% of new cases. This is not the shock girl summer we were expecting. The pace of vaccination here in the U.S. has really flattened out. One hesitant group is young people who aren't eager to roll up their sleeves. In an attempt to try to speak Gen Z's language, the White House is even turning to Olivia Rodrigo. Hey, I'm Olivia Rodrigo, and I'm here with President Biden talking about the importance of getting vaccinated. But as we wait to see whether that kind of appeal can increase vaccination rates, some governments and drug companies are looking at what's going on with the Delta variant and are playing the long game, talking about things like COVID booster shots and third doses. Here's what you need to know about that in 60 seconds. Israel has one of the highest percentages of vaccinated residents in the world, but it's still struggling with increasing infection rates. That's worrying for the country's government, which is now offering a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine for at-risk adults. That comes after Israel said two doses of Pfizer are proving less effective against the Delta variant than the original strain of COVID. 
It's still TBD whether Israel's gonna roll out third doses for everyone, but watch this space. Meanwhile, Pfizer wants the U.S. to follow Israel's lead. This week, it met with federal health officials to say, how about you approve a third dose too and call it a booster shot? Except the CDC and FDA aren't feeling it. Reportedly, there's some concern that the side effects tied to the second dose of Pfizer might get worse with a third. And speaking of side effects, this week the FDA also issued a warning saying the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine can lead to a higher risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare autoimmune disorder. And while this side effect is super uncommon, it could put people off getting vaxxed instead of realizing these vaccines are, as Olivia says, good for you. How'd we do? Want us to skim another complex story from the news on an upcoming episode? Send in your questions to audio at theskim.com. It's been a busy year for the IRS. Most Americans may receive a check for up to $1,200. A second check. Stimulus check. The IRS is planning to extend the deadline to file your taxes by one month. And all of that has piled up. Millions of Americans are waiting in limbo for their money from the government. The IRS is holding 29 million tax returns for manual processing. Its employees are continuing to work hard to deliver tax refunds as fast as possible. If you keep checking your mail or refreshing your online balance and wondering where the hell is my tax return, you might be waiting a while. The IRS is warning that it's dealing with some big delays in sending out more returns. There are a few reasons for that. The first is that the IRS is short-staffed. Between 2010 and 2018, it lost about 20% of its budget, so it had to downsize. Second, a bunch of tax returns apparently needed manual review because of errors, which is hard to do when you're already short-staffed. Not to mention, when you combine a backlog of some 2019 tax returns and some employees not having access to IRS facilities because of COVID, you end up with a lot of returns that still need to be processed. Oh, and then there was the hassle of dealing with pandemic relief, including sending out three rounds of stimulus checks. All of which is bad news if you are counting on that refund coming soon. And if the IRS wasn't already busy enough, Team Biden put another item on their to-do list, distributing new child tax credits to millions of families. Child tax credits are a payment the government makes to lower-income families to help out with the costs of raising a kid. These tax credits have been a very successful poverty reduction tool, and advocacy groups say they've been especially crucial for Black and Latino families. Thanks to Stimulus 3.0, Taxpayers with dependents age 17 or younger may qualify for an expanded child tax credit in 2021. It's worth up to $3,600 per kid, up from $2,000 in 2020. Half will be paid out in six monthly installments starting this week. The other half comes in 2022, when you file your taxes. And thankfully, we're not expecting any delays on these coming through. But if you're still wondering, when's my regular old tax return gonna show up? The government says it'll come eventually. For now, we'll leave a link to the IRS's Where's My Refund tracker in our show notes. Part of the economy we are seeing just explode is the housing market as home prices are rising at record rates. If you're selling, 
it's a great time for you. If you're buying, good luck. It's crazy. <laughs> it is just crazy. And it seems like it's crazy everywhere. Mika. As one industry expert quipped, if you have to sleep on it, you won't sleep in it. Okay, even though cable news can be pretty cringy, they're right about one thing. The U.S. housing market has been crazy over the past year. Maybe you have a friend who's been trying to buy and literally just can't find anything. Or maybe you put something on the market, got a lot of money for it, but realized, oh shoot, now I need to compete for a new house. The housing market right now is an emotional roller coaster. The process of buying your first home is supposed to be an exciting rush of emotions as you search for the perfect place, sort out your finances, and try to land a sweet deal on top of all of that. But that typical rush of emotions is basically like riding a kiddie coaster compared to 2020. This past year has been more like King Dakar, Ka, where there are almost no houses left to buy and people can't afford what's left anyways. Meaning that emotional, exciting process has gotten 10 times more stressful for people looking to buy. I call them broken buyers because it's like, you know, something just breaks your heart once and you're not sure if you really want to try again. That's Trisha Lee. She's a real estate broker based in Brooklyn. And she told us over the past year, she's seen a lot of heartbroken clients. They're absolutely fatigued and agents are fatigued because we're frustrated. We're just invested. We see you in this house too. We want you to run around in it and cartwheel around your kitchen too. It's tough and it's tough everywhere. It's not specific to any area or East Coast, West Coast. Like everyone is just really, really fatigued. To make sense of what's going on and why it's happening in the first place, we called up Daryl Fairweather. She's the chief economist for Redfin, a national real estate brokerage. And she confirmed that what Lee was seeing with her clients in Brooklyn has been playing out all over the country. The housing market is really competitive right now. Home prices are up from last year. Most homes sell in under two weeks. Over 40% of homes sell in under just one week. Many homes get multiple offers. So it's just really tough out there for home buyers right now, especially for people who maybe are just becoming able to buy a home, maybe they're first time home buyers. They're trying to find something affordable, and there really isn't a whole lot that is affordable right now. In fact, Redfin found that the median home price has increased over 25% since last year, and the number of homes available to buy has decreased over 45%. Yikes. So that's where we're at. How'd we get here? First, we have to go back in time for a second to 2008. After the last foreclosure crisis in 2008, builders really backed off of building homes. Builders built too much before the last housing bubble, and afterwards, they kind of got scared of overbuilding. So during the 2010s, fewer homes were built in that decade than any decade going back as far as the 1960s. And at the same time, population is still growing. We have this huge cohort of millennials entering home buying age, ready to settle down and start families. And the homes weren't built for them. So we have this huge cohort of people who are entering home buying age, and we just haven't built enough homes for people. Got it. So fewer homes were built to begin with. And the homes that have been built are rarely starter homes that aren't exactly budget-friendly for first-time buyers or new families. Plus, Fairweather told us, for a lot of the homes that do exist, people just don't want to leave. 
people are staying in their homes longer, older generations are staying put as opposed to going into senior living facilities or downgrading to a small apartment. So for a number of reasons, there just aren't a lot of affordable, practical homes available for sale right now. But that's not stopping renters from saying, screw it, I'm way too cramped here. Also, I've watched so much HGTV, I'm ready to get my hands dirty. If you look at what has happened in the last year and a half, what you understand is we went through a global pandemic and it caused our lifestyles to change. And so therefore it caused how we live to change. You know, like my client has the best quote. She's like, we went from being two people that were never home to being two people that never leave, (laughs) you know? So behaviors have changed. And even if you think about like interior design and home decorating, like have you tried to order an outdoor chair (laughs) in the last six months? You're not getting it until Christmas 2022. That desire for more space and the lure of DIY home projects created the rush for the suburbs we saw last year. The other thing that created the housing gold rush, super low mortgage rates. Mortgage rates have dropped under 3%, meaning it's still pretty much cheaper to borrow money to buy a home now than at any point during our lifetimes. Okay, quick recap. A shortage of homes plus insane demand plus low mortgage rates equals high prices and basically nothing left to buy. But how long is this going to last? Fairweather says she's seeing things start to level out. I'm seeing some signs right now that we are reaching a limit on how high prices can go. The prices that sellers list their homes at are already starting to top off and how quickly homes are selling, that statistic is starting to top off too. It seems like we are kind of reaching a limit on how competitive things can be. But still, home builders are saying, we just can't build fast enough between the cost of materials going up and a labor market where it's been hard to hire. So it could take a while before a bunch of brand new homes hit the market. Lee told us we can expect the housing market craziness to settle down once interest rates start to creep back up. People borrow more money when it's cheap to borrow money, and it's been historically cheap to borrow money in the last year and a half. So when that changes, then of course the market will change. So I predict that interest rates will have to correct themselves, they'll have to increase, and that'll have to happen the next six months to 12 months. And I predict that that will then slow down the hectic buyer trend. And I think that it'll also calm down the really aggressive seller trends that are happening where it's like you can't even justify the number. You're just throwing it out there to see if you can get it. So behaviors will shift when the data shifts. And right now, the rates are going up a little bit, but they're still like very, very desirable. As for some advice for people who are still trying to buy right now. If you're a buyer, you need to really be clear on exactly what your budget and your limitations are and get ready for some of the ups and downs along the way. I think that's why it's important to assess whether or not you're ready for the process, you know. But what I love about this entire industry is that they always do know their home when they see it, and it does work out. So many times I work with someone and they're like, oh, I can't believe it. I'll never get over that heartbreak. I just, I'm just done. I'm just done. And then, you know, three days go by, like in the middle of the night, they send you a little Zillow page and they're like, what do you think about this? (laughs) I thought we weren't doing this anymore. And then, you know, we'll start the process again. So it's really sweet when they do actually get that home. Like, you'll know it when you see it. It will work out because it's supposed to be your home. For more tips on home buying in a crowded housing market, check out the skim.com slash money, where we've got you covered with the five things you need to know before you buy. 
Speaking of choosing a place to live, it turns out Virginia isn't just for lovers. It's home to America's healthiest city, Arlington. That's according to the just-released American Fitness Index, an annual check-in on physical activity and health in America's 100 largest cities. The report tracks 34 different variables, from a city's air quality and walkability to rates of health conditions and people's physical activity. By the way, the CDC recommends doing at least 150 minutes of moderate-intensity aerobic activity a week, in addition to two days a week of strength workouts. And this report found not everyone's doing that. We already knew that many of our largest cities were unhealthy, and only about 50% of people pre-COVID reported participating in physical activity and meeting the guidelines, and 25% reported having no physical activity. That's Nicole Keith of the American College of Sports Medicine. We also know that like 30% of residents in these cities were obese and 14% smoked. And even though a lot of the 2020 data still hasn't come in, Keith said the pandemic has not been helpful. So the preliminary reports that we're hearing regarding health behaviors during COVID is that health behaviors got worse, not better. No matter where we lived, COVID caused most of us to spend more time at home. It changed our eating habits, it kept us out of the gym, it disrupted our commutes, and it changed our stress levels. But Keith says part of what put cities like Arlington, Minneapolis, Denver, or Seattle at the top of the American Fitness Index is that when people were told to get out of a crowded gym, those cities offered other places to go. When you think of those cities like Minneapolis and Denver, people recreate year-round, and the environment is conducive to that. In terms of park facilities that create opportunities to ski or to ice skate, Minneapolis-St. Paul has the largest trail system in the country, and the cities work to clear those trails so that people can use them year-round. And people aren't afraid to bundle up and go outside and jog or walk or go snowshoeing or skiing. And people make the personal choice to take advantage of those opportunities. Meanwhile, the opposite is true in some of America's least fit cities. Keith says, in a lot of places, years of planning for cars and not pedestrians has led to pollution, inaccessible playgrounds and parks, and the bad health outcomes that come along with people not getting enough physical activity. That's true for places like Oklahoma City, Las Vegas, or Indianapolis, where Keith lives. So I'm in the bottom five. There are things that our city planners are doing really well and not so well. Years of bad planning, years of planning for drivers and not cyclists and pedestrians really cause the problem. And so those cities that plan for pedestrians and for bike lanes, the cities in the bottom five just didn't do that. If you're hearing this and thinking, all of that sounds good, but it's not relevant to me, Keith says making cities fitter actually makes them stronger in other ways that benefit everyone. Active transportation, having walkable and bikeable sidewalks and roads, is really great for economic development. It increases spending of the consumer. If you're walking past a store rather than driving past a store, what's the likelihood that you see something that you want to go in and buy? Another argument is all across America right now, there are challenges with crime. The more people who are out in the communities walking and biking, the less crime we see. So it's an investment, yes, but it's going to end up improving public safety and improving economic development. Though change still takes time. But Keith says we don't have to sit around and wait for it to come to our city. COVID may have disrupted some of our positive routines, 
But maybe some of that change can be a good thing in the long run. I like to call them pandemic silver linings. People's access to exercise programs and exercise options has improved. And it would be wonderful if that led to increased participation in physical activity. Because even though people weren't going to the gym, if you think about in your community and my community, I never saw so many people walking. People were out walking, walking their dogs, walking with each other. They were in the park pushing their kids on the swing set if the park was open. Flowers were planted, mulch was done. That's all physical activity. And so I think it's important for people to understand that physical activity is for everyone. It is the great equalizer. 95% of Americans can walk. Or if you're using a wheelchair to ambulate, but you're still pushing the wheels on the wheelchair, whatever you're doing, it counts. And, you know, really 150 minutes a week is 30 minutes a day. And if you break that up 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon, you've got it done. This is something that everyone can do. It's like a gift. It's the one health behavior where somebody's not taking something away from you. Europe is waking up. After COVID postponed soccer tournaments and cultural events last year, this month is Europe's big coming out party. First, Italy beat out England to win the European Soccer Championship. And now, the Cannes Film Festival is taking over the French Riviera. I'm walking from the Palais, which is where those famous stairs are, the red carpet is. That's Anise Gohar. She's a TV producer covering the world of cinema for audiences in the Middle East and North Africa. We called her up as she was walking home from a long day of red carpet coverage. And despite getting to attend all of the film world's biggest events, she says there's nothing quite like Cannes. Not just because I'm partly French, (laughs) but I don't know, there's some sense of glamour here that you rarely find at other festivals. It, It looks better on screen, you know, for TV. Gohar says, compared to watching films on her laptop last year, Being back in Cannes is great, even if things aren't fully back to normal. Every other day, you need to get tested. just adds another layer of rules and regulations, and like they stop you for everything to check your PCR and masks all the time. And now it's like the peak of, you know, heat, so you're sweating and you have the mask. And yeah, it adds to the hecticness for sure. Not going to lie, though, if it means enjoying 80-degree sunny days in the south of France and hanging out with movie stars, I'd totally sweat under a mask, too. Anyway, back to the films. When the festival was last held in 2019, the winner of the prestigious Palme d'Or Award was the South Korean film Parasite, which also went on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. But that's not typical. See, Cannes has a bit of a reputation for spotlighting offbeat films. Superhero movies need not apply. But Gohar says three films at Cannes this year are still worth keeping on our radar, starting with a film from a famous director starring a pretty famous young actor. Definitely the new was on Anderson because of Timothée Chalamet. <laughs> it began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch. 
Wes Anderson's new film, The French Dispatch, is about a fictional magazine that's a lot like The New Yorker. It's also so packed with stars that Elizabeth Moss and Saoirse Ronan barely made it into the trailer. The film premiered this week in Cannes and will be arriving stateside in October. The next film to watch out for is Annette, which comes out next month and stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. What I see in her is obvious. What she sees in me is... Hmm, that's a little more puzzling. We watched the trailer, and honestly, it makes no sense. Gohar says that's part of what makes it so good. Like you come out, you really feel like you've traveled. And it's a, it's a musical, so it's fun. And finally, Gohar says American audiences might be interested in a film that's received a bit of a mixed reaction at Cannes, Flag Day, which is directed by and stars Sean Penn, along with his real-life daughter. I heard the most horrible reviews from French critics. <laughs> but let's be honest, sometimes what fancy critics hate is exactly what American movie audiences love. You can catch Flag Day in theaters next month. And if you're now super curious about what film wins at Cannes, the big prize will be announced on Saturday. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. The Skim senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.